All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is The Social Brain. Uh, we're episode 28 now. Uh, really fun to keep doing this show. Today, we're talking about something that has been really, really fun to, to research, to, to really dive into. It's a topic that is going to hit everyone uh, in a very personal way. This is something that we deal with in our every lives all the time. Uh, we're going to be talking about power dynamics. We're going to be talking about status uh, and what these kind of things do to the to the brain, to your health, to all of these things. And so for a minute, I just want you to, to really stop and reflect on how these dynamics play out in your daily life. Because from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, you are constantly navigating a web of intricate power dynamics and status every single day. And it's in every single one of our relationships. It's in our personal relationships, whether that's romantic, whether that's family dynamics, it's in our professional relationships between managers and, and employees and all of the, the inner dynamics between employees and all of these things. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. And it's really, it's, it's almost a currency in our social life. It's really how we dictate the relationships and how the relationships unfold. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating to see how this kind of unravels in terms of how our brain processes these things. Uh, but one of the things that I really want to challenge you on is that I think a lot of people have this, this negative connotation when they hear the word power. It's like, it sounds like visceral, like, oh, like power. I don't, I don't want to use power. Uh, and that's, that's great because there's this, this cultural kind of idea around power that it's all about dominance, that it's all about aggression, that it's about controlling people against their will and all of these kind of things. Uh, and that is absolutely a part of it. There are ways of using power that are very forceful, that are very aggressive and dominant. Um, but you have to remember that Power is also at play in all of the cooperative action that we take as a species. It's really what allows us to be the most successful and dominant species on the face of the earth. It's what allows us to, to engage in altruistic and cooperative behavior, to, to form really strong bonds and cohesive groups. Uh, it's, it's that attractive power within our kind of... Kind of <laughs> Social groups, all of these things that, that are, are fascinating, that, that hold everything together. Um, but so much of this really kind of goes unnoticed because it's, it's operating in the background. And something that we'll talk a lot about throughout this episode is the fact that this is pervasive across the animal kingdom, across so many social species, all the way down to fish. And so this is something that our brain has evolved and adapted to track, to understand, to bias our behavior and all of these things. And so often it's running in the background. It's something that, that we don't consciously think about all of the time, but it's massively influencing our behavior. And so we really, we want to kind of set the stage first and, and talk about like what power actually is, uh, the differences between something like power and dominance or power and status, uh, but then get into some of these health effects. What like low status versus high status does to our health, does to our cardiovascular system, all of these things that we've seen in other monkeys, other animals, uh, but also look at, at how it manifests in the people at the top of the hierarchy, how these hierarchies form. Um, and then at the end, it's really interesting at the end, we'll get into some of the nuance uh, because there's lots of different kinds of power. 
And depending on which kind of power you use is very much going to dictate the kind of reaction you get from the people that that power is being used on. Uh, so this is this is a fascinating one. I'm like absolutely excited about it. Uh, I hope that we can get to all of it in an hour. If we don't, we might like save some for a future episode. Uh, but I'm Taylor Guthrie. I run the channel, The Cellular Republic. I have college courses on all of this stuff. Uh, and this is my awesome co-host, Andrew Cooper Sansone, runs the channel Sense of Mind. Uh, and I'm going to kick it over to him. Yeah. Um, so as we're we're talking today, uh, if you guys get anything out of this episode, please consider uh, liking and subscribing to our channels. That really helps us to keep this going and keep this free to to everyone watching. Um, and if you want to support us a little more, a little more tangibly, um, you can check out our Patreon. And uh, I'll just throw up the QR code there, but it's patreon.com slash the social brain. And uh, you can sub subscribe for as little as a dollar a month and just support us. Keep keep this going. If you get any kind of value out of this, this is a, a really great way to kind of show your support. Um, but like I said, just liking and subscribing would be awesome. And really just interacting in the chat. We're already seeing some activity there right now. Uh, we'd love to address questions the best we can. And so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll hand it back over to, to Taylor to get back into today's topic, which is power and status. Yeah. And, uh, and thanks to, to Philip for these, these awesome comments that we have in the, in the chat right now about reading about status, the role it plays in culture. Uh, it's, it's prevalent in everything every single interaction, every conversation. Right now, there's a power dynamic at play just with people listening to us. Uh, it, it's it's fascinating. And so I think it's it's really important to start with, with what power actually is. Like, let's try to come up with a definition. Uh, do you have some kind of Webster definition you want to throw out, Andrew? I, I was looking at the uh, the APA, the American Psychological Definition of, uh, or American Psychological Association definition of power. And uh, I'll pull that up. It's really simple. They just <clears throat> define it as the capacity to influence others, even when they try to resist this influence. Excuse me. <clears throat> so and that can sound yeah. really devious, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it can. Uh, but I think a really important thing to think about, there's a there's a quote from from Bertrand Russell. Uh, and it's uh, I'm pulling it up. I thought I had it up already. Um, it's really about how the fundamental concept in social science is power in the same sense in which energy is the fundamental concept in physics. And so like, yes, power is something that can influence someone to do something that they otherwise wouldn't do. Uh, but you have to think that like so much of this is really what builds societies. Like a lot of this is, is referent, right? It's that I really want to be a part of this group. I want this person to like me. I want, I want this, uh, this relationship to endure and to last and all of these things. All of those things are like motivating forms of power that, that may, you know, I might put more time into my relationship, into my marriage, into the group that I'm a part of, the leisure group that I'm a part of, not because it's serving some type of like selfish need that I have, but because I want to contribute to those things because there's some sort of like attractive power that those things have over me. So it's not always necessarily like this, this bad thing. Uh, and I think that's really what we want to challenge through a lot of this is trying to remove some of the negative connotation that comes up, these visceral feelings that come up when you think about it. Yeah. Cause there's a difference between cooperative power dynamics and 
coercive or, or, you know, violent, uh, violent power. And I think that's, that's really something that, uh, gets lost in some of these discussions like Taylor's talking about. Um, it's, it's not always that, you know, in that definition that it says the capacity to influence others, even when they try to resist this influence, it's not always that the, the capacity to do so involves violence or, or, um, force or coercion. Um, so it's it's really important to keep that in mind. It's it's this ability to influence even when there's there's some resistance. So maybe we should dive into that a little deeper and talk about the the distinction between power and dominance and what what is what is dominance in your view? Yeah, I mean this is something that is is really conflated. Uh, when you think about power, oftentimes uh, you think of this this kind of like toxic cultural concept of like the alpha male that uh, has has really taken off in a way that it never was intended to. Like when you look at uh, Franz De Waal that does a lot of the primatology research, he wrote a whole book on like uh, primate politics and all of these things uh, that really kind of kicked off a lot of the like the alpha male like I'm just gonna dominate and be aggressive and do all of these things. Uh, that definitely is a way that you can assert your will. And as we'll kind of talk about, a lot of the dominant stuff is something that uh, that we as, as humans, uh, like lower primates and all of these things, will immediately attend to those kind of things because it's there's there's threat associated with that. We look for large body size. We look for whether someone can overpower us, all of these kind of things. But you have to think about long-term dynamics because we're a social species that maintains really long-lasting relationships. And so if you're constantly oppressing someone, if you're dominating them, if you're treating them like they're less than you and you're objectifying them, they are not going to want to maintain that relationship. And when you hear Franz DeWall talk about like alpha males, he's like, alpha males are not bullies. Alpha males have allies. Alpha males are the ones that, like, you can have an alpha male that's one of the smallest chimps in the troop, but because he's formed a coalition, because he's formed these reciprocal relationships with others, he's developed a different kind of power that doesn't require dominance. And there are moments when dominance is needed, and he can maybe send one of his allies that's this really, like, big chimp that can do that for him, but it's not, it's not necessary. It's not what power is. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's good to think about that. If, if, if it's, if power is being exercised in a way that, that as you describe, somebody is, um, you know, feeling like less than that, that they're constantly being told that they're, they're not important and things like that, that the only way that can be maintained is usually through coercion. So it's, uh, it's an interesting, um, dynamic there, but I guess I digress a little bit. Uh, we we're talking about the difference between dominance and power. And then there's also this related concept of status, right? And um, a lot of these studies on power, especially in psychology and neuroscience, um, put kind of mush power and status together a little bit, or they, they end up sort of looking at both because they, they overlap conceptually. So yeah, what is, what is the difference between power and status? Uh, there's there's a lot of high correlations between power and status. People that have a lot of power tend to rise higher in, in status. Uh, this interesting question in the chat, why do you two think discussing status is somewhat taboo in society? Uh, that kind of plays into a lot of what we're trying to talk about and what we're trying to, to kind of uh, fight against because uh, the word power oftentimes 
implicates you in thinking that like we're trying to take away your personal power that we're trying to take away your agency in some way and i think that that's something that our culture is very much trying to fight against right now right we're trying to say that like we want to prop people up we want everybody to be a free agent to be independent to, to not have to be told what to do all of that kind of stuff so i think it gets a little iffy talking about it uh because status itself is implying that people that are higher status have more ability to exert their will uh, they have more resources, they have more information, they have uh, more kind of referent qualities in terms of they might be more attractive, they might be all of these different kinds of things. But one of the things about status that's really important to think about and remember is that you can be low status. So think about like socioeconomic status, right? You don't have a lot of money, uh, you don't have a lot of uh, influence in terms of getting people to do what you want, but you may have a lot of prestige. Like think about college professors, right? College <laughs> professors have a lot of expert power. They can talk about the things that they know and they can influence people in terms of having more knowledge than someone, having more information than someone, but they aren't high in status uh, because they don't have the resources to influence people in that way. And what do you think would be an example of the opposite, like someone with high status, but low power or yeah. High power, but low status, actually. That's what, or no, well, that's that was what you just so, described. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so no, the, the other side. So you can have someone that's considered being high in socioeconomic status, but, but lives their entire life at the will of other people. Right. Uh, and this is something I like to challenge a lot of people. I mean, this comes in into all kinds of different philosophies throughout the years and all of this, uh, that there's been a lot of time spent trying to understand what it is we're doing for ourselves and what it is that we're doing because of the expectations of others. And that's where a lot of these, these power dynamics come in. So you can have someone that's really high in socioeconomic status and status in general, but all of their behaviors are dictated by the expectations of other people. They're constantly mm. doing something for their boss. They're constantly doing something for their spouse. They're never doing something out of their own kind of creative spirit, their own like self-will. That's really interesting. There's uh, this novel by um, Ayn Rand, who's a very controversial figure, but uh, <laughs> The Fountainhead. And uh, it's most of the characters in that book uh, fall into that where they are. They're just they might be um, really high status, but everything they do is just dictated by the, the social milieu that they find themselves in, um, except for the main character. I don't want to give any spoilers, but uh, it's a, just an interesting, um, you know, literary example of that. But uh, th then we we have a, another interesting uh, question in the chat. Um, a terrorist can influence actions through threats. Does that mean that terrorist? Does that mean that terrorist has status uh, in the firm of dominance? Form of dominance. Yeah. Form of yes. I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's that ties into what we're talking about, right? Because we're really trying to disentangle these concepts that often get conflated with one another. Uh, dominance is not power. Status is not power, right? Uh, this person is using a form of power through coercive means, right? They're coercing through threat, through violence, and that is causing people to do what it is that they 
they want them to do. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they have like high status, which might be dictated by prestige. So they might have status within their terrorist organization. Uh, they might have high socioeconomic status. So they might have a lot of means and resources to do the things that they want. But uh, we're really trying to disentangle how these concepts are related to one another. Because uh, if we just think of power in terms of status or in terms of dominance, then we're missing so much of the nuance of our everyday life, right? Because oftentimes when we think about power, we immediately jump to these like high forms of power, to these cultural forms of power, like uh, a judge or a police officer, or a terrorist, right? Uh, but we are dealing with power dynamics every single time we have a conversation with someone. Every single time we're trying to, to get more recognition or appreciation from a loved one. That's all about power. And it's not the same kind of power right? It's about recognition. It's about wanting to be a part of something. Uh, and that's causing you to do something that you otherwise probably wouldn't have done if it was just you in that situation. That's, in, yeah, that is, that's really interesting. And maybe we could spell out like an example of, of sort of everyday life, uh, getting away from those really high forms of power and just talking about how it is in, in everyday conversations that power dynamics uh, come into play. Um, you know, it, it seems like a lot of it has to do with, with recognizing someone else's, you know, greater ability to do something, uh, whether it's just, you know, leading a team, like understanding those dynamics, um, or if it's, uh, you know, in like, thinking like of sports or something like that, where, um, somebody who's, who's performing better, who's like the better player is, you know, probably given more power on the team um and it's not has nothing to do with coercion or force and it just naturally arises because of people's perception and understanding of, of other people's capacities we we automatically uh infer competence when we interact with someone we are like there's there's all of these models we've talked about this before in our like in group out group uh, episode that we did in terms of like how we judge other people uh, and we're constantly judging people on how how skilled they are in whatever they're trying to do right so like Andrew talked about like sports teams so who's the best player on the team and who's the worst player on the team we're constantly engaged in these social comparative processes of trying to figure out where we fit in the competence ladder. Right. Where do our skills fit among all of these other people that we're a part of? Because you have to remember that power itself is a group process. Power is not something that you can just have in N of one of one person. Right. <laughs> uh, the whole point of it. And this kind of leads into our next topic in terms of hierarchies in general. Hierarchies are super prevalent through the entire animal kingdom. Every single animal. I, I probably shouldn't say every single, probably most of the social animals, uh, all the way down to fish. There's like different fish, there's different reptiles, tons of different mammals. Uh, anything that has to engage in social cooperative behavior spontaneously forms status hierarchies. And it's something that happens immediately. It's something that happens really quickly. Uh, this is something that we see with, with young children. 
you put like three and four year olds together, they will immediately arrange themselves within a pecking order, uh, within a status order based on on warmth, based on competence, based on like where they fit among their peers and how good they are at something and how much they know about something. Um, and these things we have to remember because they're so prevalent in all of these different animal species, they're highly conserved across evolution. And there's something that our brain is engaging in unconsciously without us even thinking about it. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And you mentioned the term pecking order. And maybe <laughs> since we're, we're talking about kind of the, the evolutionary angle to this, we could talk about where that term pecking order comes from. That's something I mm -hmm. actually learned from one of your lectures. <laughs> no, go for it. Yeah, take it away. Well, I think it comes, does it come from a specific species of bird or is it just... Birds hens. in general, hens. Okay, so mm -hmm. chickens, uh, hens. Uh, they they establish this this kind. Of, I guess it's a, a dominance hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's um, basically like the hens that are higher in the hierarchy are will peck the ones that are lower in the hierarchy, and uh, that's kind of a, a form of a showing their higher status in some way. Yeah. And it's it, the really cool thing about it, too, is that we also need to forget about like male, female type stuff with all of this, too, that this is not a male thing of like, yes, there, there's lots of psychology studies that have shown that like that men in general are more prone to seek power. Uh, and it's it's hard to to interpret those results. Right. Because we don't really know whether that's culturally influenced or not. Right. Because our culture very much like pushed a, a male kind of narrative around they should be part of the workforce. They should be managing people. They should be doing all of these things. So we kind of well, gravitate to that. Yeah. And yeah. historically, you know, we're talking about these, um, you know, the, the the intermingling of of power and dominance and um, status. And it's just, you know, men do biologically have uh, larger frames and stronger uh bodies and things like that. So especially through history, before we've gotten to sort of modern times and more modern uh, liberal civilizations, we, you know, relied more on that uh, force to to establish those power hierarchies. So it seems like sort of a natural outcome that men would end up at the, the top of those as unjust as that may be, um, you know, that that historical influence almost certainly has to have some influence on the present. But pecking order is about a female species. Right, like right. The, the yeah, term yeah, yeah. itself came from female chickens, right? And and when you look across, when you look at primates, when you look at all of these different monkey species and everything, uh, there's, there's social hierarchies within the male portion and within the female portion in terms of, and, and when we really think about kind of the evolutionary aspect of this, right, of, of why power dynamics and hierarchies are forming in the first place, it's about access to resources in most other species. Um, we'll kind of get into in a minute, like what makes humans so different. Uh, but most of the animal kingdom, like think about like Maslow's hierarchy, right? For, for those of you that don't know Maslow's hierarchy, the bottom rungs of Maslow's hierarchy are like physiological and safety needs. It's like, I need to secure food. I need to secure water. And if I don't have food or water, that's going to highly influence my behavior. It's going to motivate me to secure those resources, right? And most of the animal kingdom spends like 95% of their time in those lower rungs of the hierarchy securing food, securing water, securing safety. And so because of that, there's a lot of 
stuff that happens in terms of forming hierarchies that's all about access to resources. That those, and this is where dominance became such a big thing when we're thinking about power, is because oftentimes in these other animal species, dominance is a really good way of securing resources. Of like, I'm bigger than you, and so I'm going to eat more, and you can have some when I'm done. Yeah, and and for most, again, I go back to history. Most of human history um, has been people living in basically in extreme poverty. Most of our ancestors lived in what we would today consider extreme poverty, and it was just trying to meet those basic needs of food and shelter and uh, you know health, I guess to some extent. Um, <laughs> totally. And it wasn't until you know a couple hundred years ago when the kind of the industrial revolution and, and the enlightenment happened and people or basically arose from poverty for the first time for a sustained period. So, uh, you know, now we're, now we're different. Now our power hierarchies are different, but it would, you know, stand to reason that before our great, um, you know, that the time of becoming much richer as a species before that we, we were probably in just about the same situation as other social mammals. Totally. And it's it's interesting because as we start to develop more stability around resources, we start to kind of be able to work up the hierarchy a little bit. Right. Uh, and the next step up is really about kind of attraction, about belonging, about maintaining social groups and social cohesion and all of these kind of things. And that's a huge thing that drives our behavior is like really wanting to be a part of something whether that's your family unit, whether that's like a, a movement that you're really proud to be a part of. Uh, if I were to ask you who you are, if I just put the question up, who am I? Uh, you're probably going to list a bunch of relational descriptors. Like uh, if I were to answer that question, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a scientist. Like all of those things, they represent my membership to a group. And because of that, that group membership is really important to me. And that becomes something that's a new resource. Right. That is like having a, a pot of resources in terms of food and water and safety and all of that. Uh, but now that's something that I am going to strive for in terms of motivating my behavior in a different direction. And that starts to tweak a little bit the way that power dynamics then kind of play out in the human species and still in kind of the, the higher primates, too. Yeah, that's so interesting. And um I guess we can, do you want to spend some more time on, on the evolutionary angle to this, or should we, should we jump into some of the biology and the, the interesting uh, findings around status? Uh, yeah, no, we can, we can definitely do that. And I think uh, just to kind of give you a, a preview, Philip, uh, you're talking about uh, these, these things, these actions based on where someone is in the hierarchy. That's exactly where we're leading. So uh these these status hierarchies that pop up and remember these are these are spontaneous formations right there's a lot of cues that at the very beginning you put a bunch of people in a room there are things that we're automatically attuning to and some of those are conserved through evolution in terms of dominance cues in terms of how, how big someone is uh, a lot of it is eye gaze right so people that feel like they're high status subjectively that feel like they have more power more information more dominance whatever it is are going to maintain a lot more eye contact and those that feel more submissive subjectively are going to avert their gaze. And this is something you, you can do with dogs. Like this is like staring a dog in the eyes actually signals like I'm the one in, in power right now. I'm the one in control. And you'll see that like there's this aversion of eye gaze or whatever that happens. Um, and so now that we've kind of formed this hierarchy, 
what happens in terms of where you fall in that hierarchy to your health, to your brain, all of that. And that's kind of where we're leading. And a lot of it is not, not so great when we're talking about low status. Yeah. It's a lot, it's associated. I mean, low status, which is something we should probably define. Like, what is it? What does it mean to be low status? Um, and yeah, so maybe we should start off with that. Low status would mean that you have less access to resources. So uh, look at a, a troop of, of chimpanzees. You give them a bunch of food, and this is even like in a zoo, right? You give them a whole thing of food, the people highest in status are going to eat that food first. And then the next rung down is going to get the leftovers of that. And then the next rung down is going to get the leftovers of those two above them, right? And so they have the least access to food in terms of when they are allowed to eat. They're also, they also have the least access to mating. So the people higher in status are the ones that have the most access to mating with the females uh, in terms of like a male dominated hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just um, two things came to mind. Uh, there was a, a, a paper that we read in, in preparation for this episode that was uh, just mentioned on that point that um, Genghis Khan is something like, I, they may have uh, misquoted this number, but they said like something like one in 200 people, men alive today or people alive today. I think it was people. Yeah. And I don't know if that's in the world, but but some ridiculous percentage of uh, people in the world are descendants, yeah. direct descendants of Genghis Khan. Um, you know, that, that uh, kind of emphasizing that point about having more access to mating, um, not to mention that he was a, you know, violent uh, kind of horrible person but uh then also uh on the other hand when you were or no let's let's go let's continue with uh with this access to resources idea and what kind of health effects this leads to uh, I mean, so so first of all, I mean, you're going to see malnutrition type stuff associated with that. Like the ones at the lowest rung of the hierarchy are tend are going to have kind of lower health uh, markers in terms of nutrition just in general, because they're not getting as much access to the resources in general. Um, but the other thing that's really important to think about when you're low in status, when you're low on the hierarchy, is that you're constantly deferring to high status. So you're constantly like on edge trying to figure out like, am I, am I allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do this? Are they going to hit me if I do this? Are they going to punish me? Are they going to bite me? Uh, and that's what you see a lot of the time is that uh, it's, it's often called scapegoating that like people that are higher. And this comes from like the pecking order thing that we were talking about. Uh, so the animals that are higher in the hierarchy will often take out their aggression on those lower on the hierarchy. And it's a way of like cementing their position within the hierarchy. Uh, and so they'll just like all of a sudden just start like hitting someone or hitting another ape or hitting another monkey that's just just so happens to be lower in status uh, just to kind of show everybody like, yeah, I'm the one. And like they'll they'll prevent them from eating food and they'll they'll attack them from doing that. And so all of this is is talking about this within these like primate and monkey species. Right. In terms of like there's a lot of stress associated with constantly trying to track these high status members and what the rules are and what they want and what they're going to allow me to do. Uh, and that can lead to incredibly high cortisol levels and it can tear up your cardiovascular system. Yeah. So it's interesting. So it's this, it's this uh, psychological mediator of these health effects, these things like we see yeah. cardiovascular problems and, um, 
again, talking about in these primate species, especially monkeys and apes, but also, you know, has been observed in humans, um, weakened immune systems, uh, increased mortality rates, right? Um, but there's something to, to keep in mind that this, I think when we start talking about status, it's tempting to just think that we're only talking about socioeconomic status or that, that one's socioeconomic status perfectly correlates with everything we're talking about here. And as far as I understand, that is really not what the evidence shows in terms of low socioeconomic status, uh, meaning that you're going to be, you know, less happy and um, uh, have lower mental health and things like that, um, because it's those, the, the better correlation with those is absolute wealth rather than just your place in the socioeconomic hierarchy. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And I think that was why it was really important to really disentangle some of these ideas at the beginning, because what really stands out to me when you look at a lot of these health effects, especially as we start getting into like what happens to humans, because everything we've been talking about so far is like chimps hitting each other and biting each other. Like that's not what humans do, <laughs> but we still have all of these, these really horrific statistics around what being lower in status does to our health. Uh, in terms of messing with our metabolic rates, there's higher uh, obesity, there's higher rates of mental illness, like depression and anxiety and all of these things. And what I really want to kind of step away from is that it's not to me, the way that I really kind of look at this is that it's not status per se, it's being lower in power. It's not mm. having control in your lives. Uh, we did we did a bunch of episodes a while back, like six months ago, about uh, like learned helplessness. I uh, got really into kind of the positive psychology stuff. Uh, and there's these really interesting studies by Martin Seligman uh, that looked at how when you don't have control over your own suffering, that you tend to form depressive symptoms. You tend to form anxiety symptoms. And if you look at your life, so that that's not about status, right? That's about the the inner dynamics within your social relationships in your life, right? You're not constantly interacting with the alpha male chimp or whatever. You're interacting with your, your spouse, with your, your friends, with your family, with all of these people. And there are power dynamics at play. There are hierarchies, there are pecking orders within all of those small groups, because most of the groups that we spend time in are small groups. And those groups all have a certain level of competence hierarchy, a certain level of warmth, warmth hierarchy. And where you fall in that will dictate how much control you think you have over your life, right? Mm -hmm. If you're constantly doing things because your parents are telling you to, or because your spouse mm -hmm. is telling you to, or because your friends are telling you to, you don't have as much control over the circumstances in your life as someone who is is very like uh, like self-willed, that is like creatively doing things out of their own kind of uh, intention and their own volition. Uh, and there's, there's health effects that show that doing that is very beneficial of, of taking control and stepping out of those expectations. Yeah, it's, it's more about the perception of control over your life than what, than even than the objective situation a lot of times, because yeah. uh, people tend to, when, when some stressful event happens, they can often, um, go one of two ways, either uh, believe that they have no control over it or believe that they have control and try to take action. And as weird and woo as it sounds, the belief <laughs> that you have control is often more important 
than uh, how much control you actually have in determining what the sort of mental health effects will be of that stressor. And this is this is really important because all of this stuff is changeable. Uh, this is like one of the big bases of like cognitive behavioral therapy and all of these things is that you're reframing how you actually conceptualize a lot of these power dynamics. And one of the really important things about learning about this, about listening to an episode like this, is that you're gaining insight into the influence that these things have over you. Because everything that we've talked about so far is that these are unconscious processes. These are things that are, are driving us in one direction or another that we're oftentimes not reflecting on. And so we're feeling like we don't have control, but if we're able to stop and reflect and say, okay, I'm doing this because of this, this power dynamic in my relationship. How can I reconceptualize that? Do I really need that acceptance for that kind of person? Do I really need that whatever kind of resources they're, they're promising me or holding over my head or whatever it may be? Uh, how can I like reestablish whatever kind of control I have in that situation and inform beliefs around what it is that I can do. And that really is what combats a lot of the, the learned helplessness, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it seems like a lot of the time when you really ask yourself that question, whether you, you need to be sort of conforming to what the people around you, even people in your in-group kind of want you to do, the answer is no, is that you, you know, you are taking that as a kind of value in itself to be to be valued by this group and not really considering what does that really mean for me is that really beneficial for me um but yeah cool so uh, i mean some of the other things that we we didn't mention uh especially in humans low status often turns to substance abuse uh, the less control that you think you have over your life, the more you start masking it and start distracting away with, with substances, with addictions in general. Uh, there's a lot that has to do with lower IQ, uh, and that could have to do with just less access to, to resources, to information, to knowledge in general, uh, because of where you fall in the socioeconomic ladder and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, this is very damning evidence. Uh, that this is something that needs to be at the forefront of people's minds. And if you really want to take control over your health, uh, over physical health and mental health, uh, gaining insight into how these power dynamics are affecting you in every everyday life is really important. And so we're going to transition now into some of the, the biological stuff uh, and into kind of how our brain is processing some of these things. Um, and then stick through to the end, because the end is when we're really going to break down what these different types of power actually are uh, and where the nuance is there in terms of how to spot one form of power over another. Yeah. So so maybe we should jump into testosterone, because mm -hmm. that's always one that is brought up in the context of power and status. And uh, a lot of people think of testosterone as just the aggression hormone. And like the more testosterone you have, the more aggressive you are. But that's really not what the studies show. Instead, they show that testosterone is more about status, more about people. It's strange because there's at least how I understand it, there's these effects of where testosterone, raising testosterone levels doesn't really change your um disposition toward aggression, it just sort of amplifies it. So if you are tend to be more aggressive, it'll make you even more aggressive. But if you're someone who tends to be more you know, passive, it's going to amplify that as well. But in terms of, of status, uh, do you want to speak on that a little bit? 
Yeah, there's. Uh, I think this is some of the most clever experimentation I've ever seen uh, because this is one of those those hormones that has a lot of these like negative connotations associated with it. That there's been this, and especially like this cultural belief uh, in our society that like testosterone is aggression. That the reason why men are, are super aggressive yeah. and dominant is because of testosterone. Uh, and what they're seeing is that in those moments where aggression is needed to secure a power base. Testosterone is correlated with aggression. But what they're seeing is that testosterone is actually associated with motivating behavior towards securing power bases, towards securing higher status. And so what they see is that once you, when you win a dominance bout, when you win some type of status, when you win some type of power base, you have this huge boost in testosterone. But they did this really clever study with humans that they set up this whole scenario where obtaining status or obtaining power in the group that they were a part of required altruism, required cooperative behavior. And they actually saw increases in testosterone when you were engaging in altruistic cooperative behavior that was not aggressive or dominant, but just had to do with moving up in a status hierarchy, when moving and acquiring a power base. Because our brain knows that in order to survive, we need to secure these bases. We need to secure resources. We need to secure attraction and mates for protection, for stability, all of these kind of things. And so it, it makes sense to me, at least, that we have certain types of, of hormones and neurochemicals and all of these things that are influencing and pushing our behavior in one of those directions. I think that's so interesting to think about how like humans and probably other higher primates, like we're not just sort of instinctual creatures that are just you know, taking these cues of size and aggression as, as the way toward power or status. And we have a lot more nuance in how we think about and how we process uh, what it means to be high status or high power. And that gets into prestige, right? Uh, that like so much of, of what's going on maybe with testosterone and with all of these things in our uh, society is really more about like seeing whether someone's competent, like obtaining competence, like showing that I have more skill, not more, not more strength, not more aggression, but that I'm the, the person that, that people should be turning to in this situation. Right. 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 Um, well, and as we're, we're talking about testosterone, maybe this leads us into a little bit of the neuroscience, which is really, uh, scant, I guess. There's <laughs> not, yeah, it's new. There is not uh, all that much research on it, but there is some and it, and it, you know, overlaps with studies on status and hierarchy. Um, and as we've been saying, so much of this is kind of automatic and happening unconsciously um, with that caveat that we do, we do not just, you know, take these really uh, primal cues and, and only go with them. We, we have a lot more um, nuance in our understanding of, of what the hierarchies are. Um, but there are some interesting findings on kind of the neural imaging of uh, powerful individuals. Yeah, and it's, it's something because it's spontaneous, because it's something that we believe to be highly conserved through evolution, uh, someone that goes into an experimental kind of mindset of trying to find these things in the brain is assuming that there's probably systems within our brain that are tracking this, right? If this is so highly conserved across all of these species, then we should be able to find 
neural activity that somehow is indicating that our brain is keeping track of these things. And one of the, I mean, they've done a bit of this in the primatology research uh, with macaque monkeys. Uh, they have like electrodes down in their brain and everything. Um, and a lot of the work that's been done with monkeys has really been trying to understand like motivation. Uh, oftentimes, I'm not a huge fan of the term reward. Reward gets thrown around so much. And, and to me, a lot of these systems uh, that we call reward are really about motivation, about motivating behavior, about what is it that is beneficial in my environment that I need to move towards, or what is it in my environment that's threatening that I need to move away from. Um, and that's what a lot of these systems that are like deep in the brain that, that involve dopamine um, are really highly tied to. And what you see with some of these systems, so the ventral striatum is one uh, in humans, we have the orbital frontal cortex that really tracks like value of, is this something that is important to me? Um, and what we see is that uh, we show, we've seen increases in these areas that are tracking subjective value. Uh, when monkeys are just viewing faces of high status individuals within their monkey troop. So you show them a face of a high status monkey, and then you show them a face of a low status monkey, you're going to get a lot more activity in the reward region or the motivational region when you show them the high status faces. And this has been replicated in humans too. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, I think another way of thinking about these regions is like you said, they're tracking value. They're tracking what's what's valuable to us. I mean, the ventral striatum and the orbital frontal cortex, these two regions that that light up when uh, monkeys and humans see high status faces, these are the same regions that light up when, you know, you're making a choice between uh, an orange and an apple and you like apples more. You, th these same regions are going to show greater activity uh, in response to looking at the apple. So there's something about, you know, value, like you're saying, motivation and value, like what getting us to sort of uh, think about what's important to us. Um, and these regions are kind of tracking that. That was a good question from Philip. Is that the reason for our fascination with celebrities? That could be part of it, right? Because uh, they've shown this in humans that when we show pictures of high status, high competent people that that like we, it, it's this social comparison thing, right? We're, we're looking up right? We can, we can socially compare up and we can socially compare down, right? And when we see these people that have more than us, that are more competent, that have more resources, all of these kind of things, it's something that, that we want to attain. And so we look to them as a way of saying like, can I hop on the bandwagon? Can I like, can I get some of those resources or some of that fame or whatever it is uh, that there could be systems in our brain that are automatically kind of tracking that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's there's monkeys that will forego food rewards. They they won't even need a food reward just to look at a high status face, and they'll actually need extra food to look at a low status face. <laughs> that is so interesting, um, yeah. and and that kind of helps us understand why our our attention uh, just kind of automatically often orients two high status individuals, right? Because if they're seeming to, to represent higher, a higher value to us, then, uh, it, you know, it follows that our brains are going to be more attuned to focusing on, you know, what are these people doing? Uh, who are they and, and where are they? Uh, this goes back to like one of the very first videos Andrew and I ever did together, uh, looking at, at our goals, how we value things. And uh, something to me that's like the most fascinating thing that the brain does is attention. Um, and we we are constantly receiving billions and billions of bits of information about what we're feeling and seeing and hearing and all of this kind of stuff. But we narrow all of that down 
to very salient information in our environment. And it's not something that oftentimes we're choosing to do because there's reflexive attention. There's something that we just automatically look to things. Uh, and then there's controlled attention, which is a bit different. We have a whole episode on it. You can go, go back and watch it. Uh, but the reflexive attention part is something that tracks the things that we've established beliefs about as being valuable. So if we have this belief of where we are in a hierarchy, our attentional system is automatically tuned to look up and to look down at higher status versus lower status individuals. I see. That uh, it seems like this part of the brain can be hacked due to ad admiration of high status people. Yeah, it's because it's, it's based on belief. So if you put a bunch of work and a bunch of effort into saying like, this is the person that I care about. Yeah. This is the person that, that I want recognition from, that I want appreciation from, right? All of those social rewards that we want. Uh, we're, our brain is automatically like, if they walk in the room, it's like, oh my God, there they are. Like, right? Like we didn't yeah. like choose to do that. And I love the example that Philip gave of uh, the Elizabeth Holmes, uh, the, the woman who, <laughs> who is a fraud, um, what would you call her like a fake technologist <laughs> she she claimed to have invented this uh medical device and was all over you know had talks all over the place and she dressed just like um uh oh the the founder steve of jobs Apple, steve jobs yeah and <laughs> talked like him and looked like him and i i love that idea of the hacking uh these sort of status tracking systems in our brain by just like this superficial, like, uh, you know, imitation of what we consider a, a, someone who is like truly high status and, and probably deserves uh, to be like Steve Jobs and um, then sort of erroneously applying that to someone who just sort of acts and, and looks like <laughs> him and doesn't actually have any of the, the qualities that we care about. And attention is highly, highly, it's like intricately, uh, intimately tied into memory too. So the things that we're paying a lot of attention to are also the things that we're going to remember the most. So in all of these studies that, that look at status, uh, we tend to have a lot more memory for faces that we saw and everything that we saw that was high status and a lot lower memory for the things that are low status. And this really leads into a lot of what status and power is actually doing to an individual that will kind of lead into about whether it's corrupting us and those kind of things. Uh, and the one last thing I was going to say, like there is, there's an area in the brain that tracks magnitude judgments. So if you have someone, mm -hmm. uh, if you have someone make a judgment about whether this weighs more than this, or whether there's more of these things than this thing, uh, the inner parietal sulcus, the IPS, uh, will light up when you're making those types of math magnitude judgments. And they've done similar studies where they look at like people in the military. Uh, talking about where whether someone's high rank or low rank or any and that same region that tracks magnitude is also tracking rank right and so it, it just kind of shows it's painting this picture that all of these systems in our brain that are tracking value that are uh, attuning our attention that are laying down memory that are making these judgments about uh, whether something's bigger or less all of those are involved in tracking these processes like this is a very like intricate complex web of network that are all kind of working together to achieve these things. Yeah. So it's like, it's no coincidence that the person at the top of the hierarchy, we say they're number one or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, although I guess that's a low number, right? So that's kind of weird. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so we're t let, maybe we'll get into what what is um, high power, someone with a high level or high 
self-perceived level of power. Um, what does this kind of do to them? And this gets into the idea of like power corrupts, right? But um, yeah. some of the most interesting studies or some of the most um, you know, prevalent studies are on empathy and power. And that basically the finding is, although there are some um, contradictory findings, but but mostly it seems like the research shows that power tends to lead to a lower ability to empathize with other people. Yeah. And this is huge. Uh, like really take a moment to reflect on this. Uh, I mean, there's lots of different ways that they've looked at this and there's different forms of empathy. We did a whole episode on empathy. Uh, there's like mirroring someone's actions. There's mirroring someone's emotions. There's mirroring someone's pain. Uh, and they've done studies across all of these different domains that show that uh, if I consider subjectively that I have higher power than you, that I am going to respond less to your pain. I'm going to respond less in terms of imitating your actions. I'm gonna respond less in imitating your emotions. Uh, and that really paints this, this interesting picture, right? That when we think about whether power is corrupting, it's whether or not it's causing the person that's in a high status, high power situation to start treating people differently, right? And this is, this is showing that that could be the case. Uh, and it yeah. leads to the idea of objectification. Yeah. And it, it kind of, there's another like related finding that people uh, with uh, self-reported high levels of power also tend to think about problems in a more general or holistic way rather than thinking about the details. And I think that might have to do with this this finding with lower empathy. And, um, but it, it also reminds me of um, th that surgeons will often talk about that they can't, they don't, well, I think I mentioned this in our episode on empathy that they don't want to have empathy. They don't wanna think about the person on the surgery table as being a person. They wanna think of it as like, this is a job, like a very sophisticated mechanic, basically trying to like uh, do this job that is really important is going to save this person's life or make their life uh, you know, better in some way, but they have to kind of detach themselves from that. And I wonder if there's, there's something going on with power too, where when you, you have this high power over other individuals that sometimes that empathy can get in the way of making decisions that might actually be to their benefit. Um, but obviously you can see how this would lead to um, the like objectification and, and um, negative effects of uh, having lower empathy of just not caring what, yeah. what happens to these people. And that's, I mean, this is, this is really important to, to consider because if I'm, and think about the low status individual, right? The low status individuals tend to be higher in empathy and there's, there's something to think about there, right? Because if I'm a low status individual, that means that I have to spend more time trying to think about what the high status individuals are thinking, what their intentions are, what their feelings are like. Because if they're angry, I don't want to do something wrong. And if they're happy, maybe that's a, a way of me getting in and getting more status or what, right? So, and when you're high status, you don't have to care about what the people below you think about what their intentions are, what their feelings are, what their emotions are, because you're the one that has the resources. You're the one that can dole out punishments, that can dole out kind of recognition and appreciation and all of these kind of things. And so there's not as much of a need for it. Uh, I really want to, I haven't talked to Andrew yet, but I want to do an episode on leadership. 
Uh, and it would be fascinating to dive into this and to look at uh, what makes a good leader a good leader in terms of like not objectifying people, realizing what power can do to you, that it can completely disconnect you from treating people like they're humans, from looking at them and seeing that they have their own lives, they have their own suffering, their own struggles. Uh, I mean, I saw this in terms of class when I lived in the Middle East, like looking at people that were high class, treating like servers, like they were dirt. Uh, it was really sad to see, right? But it's something that like, once you get into this position of actually feeling subjectively that you have more competence, more skill, more power than someone else, that you start to see them as less than. Um, and I mean, I'd watch our like episode on like in-group, out-group stuff and empathy because it all ties into the same thing. That is, yeah, it's interesting though, because um, I recall from some of our research that uh, when we were reading for this episode, um, that there is something about how um, high power individuals are, they, they may be um, using a different empathizing strategy, that there's some research that suggests that it's, it's not that they're just lower in empathy, but that they're, they're using a, what's called like a mental mentalizing or a cognitive empathy. So it more just thinking about and reasoning through what somebody might be feeling rather than actually like mirroring, uh, having that actual, uh, you know, empathic feeling of what that other person is emotionally experiencing. And we got this question. How about the opposite? How do low status people view high status people? Is it a purely warm views? That, that depends. And that's a really good segue into uh, what we're going to talk about. I think we're going to go a little bit over today. That's totally fine with me because uh, we haven't talked about the actual basis of power. Uh, and there's differences between like prestige and dominance, right? Uh, if I have prestige and if you're looking at me with respect, if you if you respect my skills, if you respect my competence, there's going to be a very different view of me as a high status or a higher powered individual than someone who is constantly coercing you to do something that's holding punishment and threat above your head. Those are not going to be warm views. I mean, I think everyone listening to this can relate to the crappy boss that they had in their past that they didn't view warmly, right? Uh, but there are people that you've had in your lives that have had power over you that you've still had a very warm relationship with. And that all comes into, I mean, that leads into, I love this, this comment from, from Kimmy about, yes, please do a leadership topic. Because uh, that, that ties into how it is that we actually use this power. Uh, what is it that we're doing to encourage people to move in one direction or another? And how is that maintaining the cohesion of the group as a whole? Yeah. And there are these, these different bases of power. And so we're, we're talking about, and it's, I didn't really realize how, how many there were, but I mean, we've, you know, the one that we've mentioned a lot throughout this is coercive power. Right. And, you know, I, I guess, would you agree that that would just entail basically the use of, of force or some kind of um, uh, threat uh, in order to secure power. And it, I mean, so that's, that's kind of the, the most overt way of using it, right. Of, of really like, do, that's where dominance really comes from. And when people think about power, they're often thinking about coercion. They're thinking about being threatened to do something, being forced to do something, but the more insidious forms of coercive power are actually holding things above your head in terms of taking things away 
right? Holding punishments above you. Like, I'm, I'm not going to let you uh, register. I'm going to fire you if you don't do this thing. Uh, if I, if, or I'm going to take this thing away. I'm going to take away your paycheck. I'm going to fire you, whatever. Uh, those are all coercive forms of power. Uh, and what the literature shows is that using these coercive tactics is really bad for group cohesion. Like when we're, the, the whole question about, is it purely warm views? If I'm using coercive power, it's not going to be warm views from the people that I'm leading. And that's going to break down the cohesion in the group. And that's going to lead to me needing to use more coercive power in the future because they're not going to do things because they respect me anymore. They're only doing things because they fear me. Right, right. And I guess, yeah, so that's just a, a kind of a subtle caveat there that that uh, I think in maybe in like the political science literature, uh, coercion or coercive power would be uh, defined more as the use of, of force or uh, violence or threats of force. But here we're we're defining a little more broadly to include also, uh, you know, the threat of, for example, being fired or something like that, even though that's a sort of non-violent um, interaction. It's even um, voluntary, there's still this uh, aspect of what we could call co coercive. And so the next one's reward power. Uh, and this is something any parent can relate to. Uh, this was a big part of being a parent in the past that I think we're kind of moving away from. Uh, but this is being able to give something to someone. Uh, and it can be something that's very tangible, right? I can give you a paycheck. I can give you a candy bar. Uh, I can give you uh, something like valuable that, that you want that's, that's tangible that I can hold. Uh, but it can also be intangible things like I can reward you with recognition, with appreciation, with ingratiation. Right. Uh, those are things that, that we as a human species really value. We want to be seen. We want to be accepted. Uh, and people can use that as a form of of getting people to do what they want them to do. Carrots and sticks. <laughs> right. Right. And that's kind of like a lot of people would just draw it there, right? You're just coercive or rewarding, right? But then there's yeah. these other bases of power like um, expertise, right? Yeah. And that's, uh, this is something that a lot of people, when they think about expert power, they immediately jump to like someone who has like a lot of schooling that is like, I uh, like, like me with my MS next to my name down here, right? It'll be PhD soon, but, uh, <laughs> um, but it's, it's something that people immediately jump to thinking that like an expert has to be something that they've gained all of this expertise in something. But expert power plays out in everyday relationships. It's that I know more about the bills than you do. I know more about doing the chores than you do. It's, it's expressing that I have more competence in some type of skill than you do. And so you need to defer to me for those kind of things. You need to, to follow my example because I'm the one that has the, the higher skill level. Right. Yeah. And that, that's that's pretty clear. And that was kind of goes back to when we we're yeah, when we we're talking about competence and talking about our kind of, um, you know, n n groups naturally forming uh, sort of power hierarchies around um, expertise. But um, then you know, moving through these, these bases of power, uh, what is legitimate or legitimated power? This one. Uh, and so I, I like to try to tie these back to people's everyday lives because uh, on the kind of surface, what legitimate power is when you look at how someone defines it, uh, it's usually like an established authority figure. 
right? So you can think of a police officer, you can think of a judge, you can think of a, a doctor, uh, right? Someone who is in a position of power that we as a society have given them that position of power. And we accept that they're telling us what to do because we have given that to them. Uh, and this is something that societies are based off of. This is what holds societies together. This is a big problem in our society right now because we're starting to question legitimacy. We're starting to question whether or not those people or those institutions really should have the ability to tell us what to do, right? But legitimate power also plays out in our everyday lives too, in terms of this is really where respect lies. Like when I'm thinking about parenting with my child, I don't want to turn to coercive or reward power. I want to turn to legitimate power. I want my son to be doing what I want him to do because he respects the fact that I know these things. So, I mean, and these, one of the things to, to think about too is that there's a lot of mix and matching going on, right? That like the respect portion is that like, I I, I know that like you're the one that's in this position of authority and like I, I give you that position of authority, but then you also have these flavors of expertise that are, mixed in that and the next one which we're going to talk about which is referent power right uh, so yeah go ahead yeah no and because it, it is really important to remember that these get tangled up and there's a lot of overlap and uh and so you can have different kind of bases of power uh where like you mentioned the, the police officer you know you see the police officer and maybe that is a legitimate um power is, is part of that. But then on the other hand, there's obviously a coercive aspect to that, that if yeah. you don't do what the police officer says, they're going to put you in jail or something, or maybe worse. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so it's not, it's not like one or the other, I guess what we're saying. And it's, it's highly based on your belief, right? If you're someone who doesn't agree that police officers should have any authority, uh, you're not going to see their type of power in the same light, right? Uh, and so all of this is, it, it's a group process. It's something that's mediated by the group itself and whether or not we're giving them that power. Uh, this other one is referent power. And this one is by far, I think, one of the most powerful and one of the, the most like under the surface, under the radar types of power. Uh, referent power is all about attraction. It's all about whether or not I want to be affiliated with this person. I want to be in a relationship with this person, right? It's, it's, it really defines the like I versus we, right? The we is so important to me. I want to be a part of this group. I want to be a part of the us, a part of the they, right? Uh, and that power can be really, really motivating for someone. We start to shed a lot of our individual values, our individual goals in place of the group's goals. Uh, and when I say group, I'm not just talking about like a big group, like uh like a cultural movement or like left versus right or whatever. I'm talking about your relationships. Like I want to maintain my marriage. I want to maintain this like this spousal thing that I got, this partner relationship that I have going on. And because of that, I am going to do a lot of things that I otherwise wouldn't have done because I want to maintain that attraction and that cohesion. Uh, and this is one that can be really insidious because if one person in a relationship recognizes that they have the referent power, then they stop. It, it becomes less of a two-way street at that point. They realize that you're doing everything because you don't want to lose them and they don't put in a bunch of work because they realize that they have the referent power. Yeah. And the, the extreme version of that being, you know, um, manipulation and, and, you know, narcissistic, uh, kind of 
leading to gaslighting and things like that. But, uh, but in a, the positive form, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it can be a really, really um, positive uh, base of power. And, this, and is what, uh, this is what leaders take advantage of is that they have a really good group message that they can rally people around. And they like, I want to be a part of this company. I want to be a part of this church, a part of this whatever, because of the values of the group, right? And so I'll do a bunch of things that are group things just because I want that membership. I want that affiliation. All right. And what's the last, what's the last power base? base the scariest. Power. <laughs> uh, inform information power. Uh, and there's a reason I call it the scariest and it's because oftentimes information power is not something that you can track back to the individual that's actually using the power. Um, and this could be something that you're overtly like holding over someone's head. I have more information than you do. I mean, this is the basis of like so many like novels and, and popular shows. Like it was all the game of Thrones stuff. It was all about like who could make the moves first. But the really insidious, the really scary part of this is, is all about misinformation. It's all about grapevine type stuff, uh, about spreading messages through the gossip train, right? Uh, and, and turning people away from uh, movements, away from other people, because you're just using the manipulation of information in general. Um, and I think the reason I call this one the scariest is because we're on the verge of deep fakes, uh, which mm -hmm. I think are one of the most, the biggest existential threats to a society that could exist. Um, and I don't know if everybody knows what a deep fake is, but <laughs> yeah, what, explain that for people. Uh, yeah. So we're at the, the point in history where we're seeing generative AI. AI can create videos that look like someone doing something. Uh, there's tons. You can look up the Tom Cruise deep fakes. You can look up the Obama deep fakes where someone has gone and like given a speech and like done something. And then AI has completely modified their face to look like another person. And so now if all of a sudden there's like video footage is what we have relied on as like the solid truth for so much of the our current like modern society. Like this is you bring it into a courtroom like video footage is going to put someone in jail. But if now we can't trust where the information is coming from, what do we believe anymore? And and this is something like with these misinformation trains and like I uh, like these these like bots that will like put a bunch of information out. like that's what all of this is about. It's about mass movement of behavior uh, because you're you're putting out something that that they care about that it's and it's tying into a lot of these other bases of power. Right. Information power is often used to manipulate the other bases of power. Right. If someone has really high affiliative needs, if they really want to be a part of a group and now you have this information that's put out that may be false or whatever, that's threatening their group membership. Now they're going to do a bunch of stuff because of that referent power. Uh, so like all of this stuff is, is int intimately tied in with one another. Yeah, that's really important to remember that it's not it's not one thing and that probably the most you know successful uses of power make use of all six of bases yep. of power and we as humans are drawn to obtaining these bases of power that's really important to to remember that everything that we've talked about so far in this episode in terms of how these hierarchies form in terms of how our brain is tracking this information what we're paying attention to what we're remembering uh what we're striving for and what we're motivated towards in terms of valuation and all of these things is all about securing one of these bases of power 
And the less bases of power that we have, the less control we feel like we have over our suffering and the more depression and anxiety we feel in our lives. Yeah. Well, <laughs> on that note, it <laughs> <laughs> uh, looks like we're kind of reaching our time here. But yeah. um, do you have anything, any final thoughts you want to say? Um, I, I think that everyone should be very in tune with these processes. Uh, that the whole point of this episode, the whole point of the show really is to give you all insight into how your brain works, into these psychological processes that are unfolding in your daily life. Uh, I teach a group dynamic class that's on my YouTube channel and it's my favorite class to teach because it's so relevant to your daily life. And these things, if you don't really spend time reflecting on them, you're gonna be at the will of them. Uh, and so that's that's my my piece of unsolicited advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, um, we have uh, just a couple comments here in the chat. Um, Philip says, "Agree." Uh, quote: "I was deep faked is about to become the new I was hacked," and that's yeah. That may, that may be the future. But um, yeah. And the, the last thing you know, I was gonna say is just I I do think there's it's a little cliche to say. Um, you know, uh, uh, question authority, but there is uh, an aspect of that that I think is really important for everything we've talked about here, especially when we are talking about, you know, Elizabeth Holmes and, and the ability to kind of uh, fake high status in order to gain power or, or so, those kinds of things. And um, also just, I think, questioning what is legitimate power, what, what um, you know, how much power should say the government have over your life and um, being aware of how these processes actually work, I think is important for understanding that and for forming your own, you know, well-reasoned opinions about the, those kinds of issues politically and socially. And I think because power is a group process, power is something that we give to individuals. It's not something that they take. And so you have to realize that we are the ones giving people power. If, if someone is using attraction and all of these things against us, it's, it's because we're giving them that power. We're showing them that, that their relationship, whatever, means so much to us, right? Uh, and so once you realize how much personal power you have in those situations, it can do a lot to, to give you insight into these processes. So uh, thank you all for tuning in. The chat was great uh, uh, and funny. Uh, I like it. Uh, and we just really appreciate people tuning in. We love doing these. the show. Uh, this is something that allows us to explore a lot of this in more depth than we would have otherwise and to be able to share it. Um, and so... So please, uh, we want to do this for, for free as much as we can, but we're also uh, working individuals in an in inflated economy. And so any little bit helps to, to be able to keep the motivation up to help us do this. So uh, cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you guys for, uh, for listening. And um, def we'll be back in probably uh, two weeks with another episode. So uh, we'll see you then. Awesome. Thanks, guys.